Hey there, thank you for tapping over to Coast to Coast. As far as music goes, jazz is something of a passion of mine. Though what exactly is jazz? We all have an idea of the music. I'm sure even me just talking about it is making you roll your eyes or think of some elevator music. Even if we're not particularly keen on the genre, with calls to Frank Sinatra, some horn, maybe some Dizzy Giuseppe, or John Coltrane's sax, or maybe a cocktail lounge, or maybe still elevator music, we all can think of jazz. Though as it turns out from this episode, what defines jazz is really jazz. If it's been accepted as jazz, it's jazz. If it's been brought into the canon as a standard to play, then it's jazz. So I guess it's odd. It's a genre that defines itself with the genre. In trying to learn a song on jazz, or really any song in music, I'm always reaching for ways to make it easier on myself. What are the little tricks or hacks I can try that will both speed up the overall learning and also teach me a deeper truth? It's in this vein that I started using a technique to better train my ear to distinguish different notes in the Western scale. When I happened upon a method of Lego bricks to break down a jazz song that's applicable to really any song, and you b learn both it faster and deeper, making it easy so you can change the key, change the rhythm, when it's called for easier solos, or something that I enjoy the California Honey Drops and what they do is being able to inject a melody from one song into another song and having it sound completely in place. Today's guest devised a method out of necessity for himself and along with it wrote down for others and what turns out to be a common enough means for musicians to learn to play. Now through writing this out his way, others will have an idea to go off of in crafting their own. How is it that they may learn? In this episode, listening to John Elliott talk about his journey developing his method will turn out to be a shining example for how to learn anything in one's life. Identify what you need, put in the effort in solving it, break it down into the smallest of parts, spot patterns, test it, improve it, rinse and repeat. Because once you can learn something once, it's much easier to apply those principles across all of your life to whatever it may be. If it's computers like John or something more personal to you. Education really is the role of learning for a lifetime. And once we start learning something, it's sure hard to see how to apply that everywhere. With that, my interview with musician and author John Elliott, where we talk about all things jazz, John's Lego brick method and how it applies to learning music, how it's came to be, and how to apply it, as well as what exactly is a jazz standard. If you'd like to find John's book, which I recommend, or the supplementary podcast, check out the show notes in this episode. Wherever this finds you on our big, blue, beautiful planet, I'm wishing you the best. Hey, real quick while I have you here. If you like what you're listening to, please tap that follow or subscribe, as well as sign up for notifications so you'll know when our next season or episode drops. Also, if you're curious to look at our catalog of all that we have to offer and some exciting things we have to come, please visit us at bandwidth.productions.
Sweet. Well, thank you again. We just said that. But would you introduce yourself really quickly? I'm going to ask you a question and then we'll get into the show. Sure. Yeah. I'm John Elliott. I'm living in Scotland in the UK and I'm the I'm a jazz pianist and I'm the author of um, the book Insights in Jazz. Yeah. Excellent. Um, I like to ask everybody when they first come on the show, like a question that uh, is more about, you know, our individual humanity uh, and then use that as a, a launching point to the rest of the show. Um, so I want to ask you that, which is, what do you like to do that makes you happy? What do I like to do that makes me happy? Well, oof. right now, actually, I'm getting into graphic design. Uh, for years, I've been, you know, I, I, my career was in computer science, um, but I've always had a fascination with um, the arts and the way things look. And so music was one thing on the side, but visual stuff I've always been interested in, and I've been getting to know some new software called Affinity Designer and getting into doing graphic design. So that really makes me happy. That's really cool. Learning something new and uh, getting a new skill out of it. That's excellent. Yeah, and the parallels with the music stuff and, and memorizing stuff and learning new skills, it's really, yeah, it really, really, you know, once you know how, to, I think one of the lessons I learned over the years is that learning how to learn is really important. And that's a big part of what this method's about with the music, right? But, but it applies to everything. And when you're learning a new skill, you can learn it very slowly and very badly, or you can learn it very efficiently. And, you know, learning how to learn is really important, I think. I really like that you said that. Uh, people will ask me because I'm a bit of a polymath. I know a bunch of things and I try to hide that, but sometimes it'll come out because, you know, someone will bring up economics and I'll just like can't help myself but to correct them or something. And the question is always asked, like, how do you know all this? It's like, actually, all I know how to do is learn. And I just learn how to apply yeah. that to new things. And I understand how I learn. And, you know, I have like a little modules for doing it. So I really appreciate that the way you put that. Hmm. Yeah. Cool. Having yeah, it's a cool method stuff. for it is pretty great, which is a lot of what you've done then. Um, but it seems like you're able to apply it. Like, who's the guy who wrote the Book of Five Rings? Like, uh, something with an M. Anyways, he is like, once you know the way broadly, you'll see it in all things. And I feel like that's what he's talking about is once you learn the way of learning, you can see how to pick it up in other yeah. ways. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So how long have you been playing music for? So I've been playing music. I started learning trumpet when I was, I think, eight years old at school. And, uh, and I started piano when I was 14. But I've been doing music in various forms for a long time. I think I came to jazz um, probably when I was a teenager. I was very lucky with one of my, uh, I came to piano relatively late, about 14 years old, but one of my first teachers uh, was very good at showing me, you know, how to, how jazz works and how to understand harmony and uh, not just how to learn to play what's written down, but how to listen to a recording and, you know, kind of extract the elements of what's in there and, try and transcribe stuff a bit, I guess, which is, you know, really difficult to start with, but it's like one of these things, that, you know, it, uh, learning how to learn, I guess, you know, it kind of, uh, you get this kind of snowball effect or avalanche kind of effect um, where, you know, it's really, really hard to start with, but then the more you do it, the easier and the faster it gets. So uh, I was very fortunate in having the right teacher at the right time, I think. Yeah, that serendipities there are they're kind of life-defining at times um that that pivot from being able to play music to being able to pick it up in the ear you know the ear and be able to go back and use the skills that you know 
is a place that not a lot of musicians end up getting to. Like I've been playing you know, music and particularly guitar since I was eight. And that's an area that I still really struggle with. Like I, I could play along with people and have it sound good, but I'm not going to be able to say mm-hmm. like, oh, I know how to do that phrase you just did instantly, right? Like it's going to take a lot of, I haven't gotten to learning how to learn that yet, which is part of how I stumbled into your uh, work actually, um, which is also part yeah, of the reason I think I really, talk about it. Yeah, I think it's really, it's really, really interesting. I don't know, like I think the analytical side of stuff's always appealed to me. And so sometimes I'm in danger of being too analytical. I mean, the best music I think is when you just play, right? And a lot of jazz musicians have been interviewed and have said, you know, they say, what are you thinking when you're playing? And, and the answer is basically, they're not thinking because they've done all the work before, you know, and you're just playing. And if you are thinking when you're playing, then something's wrong because you're going to trip up. You shouldn't be calculating when you're actually on the stage. Um, but what's always appealed to me is, you know, hearing something and thinking, oh, I've heard that. I've heard that sound or I felt that emotion that that sound creates in me before. So what is that? You know, I want to know what that is so that I can do it and create that feeling again. You know, so that's the kind of thing. So you might be listening to a song by ABBA, you know, and you might hear that chord that makes makes the pathos feeling arise in, the, in your gut, you know. And you're thinking, what is it? And then as you learn about jazz harmony and stuff, you know, um, you know, you realize that it's in jazz standards all over the place and, and you can create it just by you know, just by flattening a certain note in the, in the scale or whatever, you know, and this is, I think that's really, it's, it's kind of empowering. I don't know whether it's because I want the power or whether it's just because I enjoy the analysis. I'm not sure, but you know, there's all sorts of things it applies to. It's not just music, you know, it's enjoying, I guess, elements of maths and maths and physics and engineering and um, graphical design, even, you know, how do you make, how do in a graphical design package, how do you make something look like a photograph when you've actually just drawn it yourself, you know, and it's the same process, you know, you're learning what, uh, what uh, processes you, you overlay and combine to make, to make this thing happen and then go back to music. And it's like, you know, when you're, when you're, when you're playing it, when you say you want to memorize a song and you know, it's got that moment of pathos, well, you know, it's going to be okay. For example, you might play the minor, the minor four chord, for example, you know, will create that feeling. And then you realize when you get more advanced that, you know, all of the chords that relate to the minor four um, harmony will give you the same feeling. And you become, you know, you build layers and layers of knowledge and understanding that might just start from, oh, I like that feeling. How can I make that feeling happen? How can I make that feeling happen to me? And then how can I make that feeling happen to somebody else, you know? Totally. I think that's yeah, the I, uh I, I, there's so much that I, I'm so excited to rack, rack, uh, branch off from that. Um, there's, well, okay, well, first off, there's a really interesting book called The Jazz of Physics, um, and whose name uh, the author is eluding me, Stefan something. Um, but he relates physics because he's a physicist, but he's also like a, a jazz sax player. And the whole thing of it is he, you know, pretty much focuses the whole book around John Coltrane. And John Coltrane's like kind of study into the circle of fifths and how that relates into physics. And, you know, you can branch off to all those things. And something that I'm also being brought to mind with what you're saying is, you know, I think about definitions a lot. And I think about the definition of romance a lot lately. 
And I feel like romance, like what is romance is the space between what you know and what you don't know. And it's something like that push mm. and pull of what you can't understand or can't know is kind of what has romance, which is often like, you know, in the, the Hollywood trope, like, you know, the, the romance is in the beginning of the relationship. And then once you get to know the person, it fades away. And my feeling is, is because you know more, right? There's that space is no longer, you know, it's, it's, it's murky or non-existent, or at least the illusion of not being existent. Um, and I feel yeah. like even if you know the science of the music, there's still, you're still chasing the romance of like, well, I don't, I can't explain why it's giving me this feeling. I know how to play and reproduce it now. Um, but now let, let's just play with that and give more ways of doing it, I suppose. Yeah. And it's all like, I, my life is all based on the kind of scientific method, I guess. So I find it very difficult to deal with religion. You know, I, I, I'm always looking for evidence uh, and if I find some counter evidence to the, the model that I've built, then I'm happy to change my model, you know. Um, but I'm looking for more evidence of, of, of whether the model that I've developed for whatever it is, is true or not. And uh, and so what you're saying is really interesting, uh, you know, um, just then. And I was thinking about what I was saying about pathos, you know, and I, I've had thoughts like this before about, you know, if you have a feeling of nostalgia, say, you know, I was, I, I, was, I was born long after World War II, but when I see images of World War II, I have a kind of nostalgia feeling. What's that all about? How can that be true if I was never there and never knew that time? Um, but I think, you know, we build models to try and understand this stuff. Well, some of us do. <laughs> some analytical people do, and other people, other people don't. And then, so then you realize that, hold on, I'm playing with all these jazz musicians, and a lot of them are not engineers and scientists but a lot of them are you know and 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 a lot of them just play and they don't know what they're doing or why they're doing it but they do it extremely well and other people play and they could tell you exactly what they've done and why they were doing it and they also play extremely well so you know one of the lessons i've learned is you've got to allow for multiple different approaches and you, you must never say this is the right true way and, and that by the way that relates back to the book and the method that I use because it was a personal thing and I would never want to people to think that that's the one true way because there are loads of jazz musicians who've done it without it, you know, so, um, so that's, uh, I think that's an, that's an interesting point. Um, but models yeah. keep coming up for me, you know, models of how, again, the graphic design, you know, when I need to learn a new technique to produce some kind of image, you know, mag magic imagery, something new, is it, is it, you know, is, is it using XOR overlays, which again, you know, it all relates to computer science and all this kind of stuff as well. And it's kind of the, the congruence of, of art and engineering and science. I think that's the space that I love to be in. Um, but I'm very intolerant of people who say, you know, oh, it's just, it's just the woo. It's the woo-ness of it all that, you know, I, I want to know why. <laughs> <laughs> yeah because i want to be I, able to I, I want to be able to control i want to be able to control it and reproduce it you know so i don't yeah, like want to be able to do just it happy yeah. yeah 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 no i totally i can totally vibe with that uh i also can can really appreciate what you're saying which is if you are i mean if i'm understanding you right even if it somebody is all just the woo uh it's still important because they're you know producing something and, and doing their part in it like I always think um, 
think back to like my both how I had thought about it until my guitar teacher at one point uh, kind of corrected me or at least gave him, gave me a new way of thinking about it. And I've run into this a lot with other musicians over the years of, you know, feeling like you need to go the Jimi Hendrix self-taught way that like, that's the way the way is to, is to throw everything out and to just, you know, figure it out on your own. And then there's the other people yeah. who are like, no, no, it's all music theory. You have to like figure everything out like Mozart um, and have it all formulaic. And that's the way to do it. Um, but, I, you know, I feel well, like you need, one, chaos. One guy, you need all the, of it. Yeah, you're right. There's one amazing jazz flautist in the UK that I, that I was lucky to work with. And he's just totally amazing. And he plays really good piano as well. He's just kind of like really good at the whole music thing. And I, I was talking to him about the me- my method that I was working on and the book and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, what I found when I talked to, you know, established musicians was that they were much less interested than people who were at the beginning or end because they'd already worked it out for themselves. And to try and then overlay someone else's method is actually really hard work and actually totally unnecessary. So, But what his advice to me, which I didn't understand for a couple of years, was... Um, he said, work it out for yourself, but don't tell anyone. Because uh, I think what he'd, un- what he'd understood is that, you know, everyone does it a different way and that you have to, um, and to try and explain to someone else is, is both very difficult and largely a waste of time if they've already partway through their journey, if you know what I mean. So, you know, so I think this... Never actually thought of that, but I, I understand what you're saying. Keep going. So part so the, the so the book. Um, I'm assuming that we're coming to the book, and I, I keep alluding to the book, uh, even though we haven't really talked about what it is yet. But I mean, the book and the method in the book. Um, it's you know a lot of it is is a journey that I went on that I had to go on because I was I found myself playing in jam sessions and just being destroyed because I didn't know. Uh, enough songs from memory and I didn't have the ability to play uh, a song that I did know in in other keys and so even if even if I thought I knew a song a singer would come along and require it to be played in another key and I would just fall apart because I didn't really know the song properly um, and I, I would go to jam sessions and I would find myself leaving and having to walk around the city for about an hour just to get my sanity back you know because I was so emotionally destroyed so my solution was when someone said, oh, there's this method out there, uh, you know, go and, go and look at this book, I, the, the one by Conrad Cork, which is um, uh, Harmony with Lego Bricks. That's his, I think that's the name of his book. Um, you know, and that's the, the kernel of the method is, is, is in there. And he'd analyzed, I think it's 24 songs in his book because he didn't, he, he spent a lot of his book on other, other aspects of jazz music, how, how to teach it, how to learn it. And then in the middle, he's got this stuff on, um, you know, he's got a, f- a, f- a couple of chapters on this method of uh, how you can memorize stuff in a key independent way. And so I thought what I need is to apply this method. And because I'm, I've got a, an engineering com- computer science background, I, I, I opened up a spreadsheet and I, you know, I started making roadmaps of songs, the harmony within songs in a key independent way and overlaying the idea of his method onto it so that I could see, I could find and see the commonality of the harmony between jazz standards and suddenly understand, oh yeah, I've seen that before. It's over here in this song, you know, and uh, oh, that's not quite the same as that, but it's essentially the same as that, you know, all that kind of stuff, which is which is what jazz players used to do was they would go and play at jam sessions every day 
and they would develop just through doing it every day they would develop that uh, that kind of knowledge whether they understood it um, you know consciously or not they were doing that by playing every day um, unfortunately jam sessions are usually at best available once a week maybe to some people once a month or maybe less you know so we have to do something else these days and uh, for me the for me what what worked for me was doing this analysis of 300 jazz standards right so and then i thought hold on a minute other people might find this useful i never intended it to be a book but i had done that analysis for me because i needed to stop feeling that emotional pain of being destroyed by performing what I thought was really badly at a jam session, you know? Um, it just wasn't enjoyable. So I wanted, but I knew I wanted to play. And so I had to solve that problem. And that was my solution was to, okay, there's a method over there. Let's try and apply it. The method was only applied to 24 songs. I, it didn't really fit all the 300 songs. So I had to extend the method and make it more, what I would call more rigorous, I guess. Um, and that was what turned into my book. That's very interesting. Sorry, I love how it, long... and, no, keep going long. It's okay. It's a, the format, the medium allows for it. So go as long as you'd like. Uh, no, that's really interesting. I love how you took an engineering approach to it. Like you saw what you were struggling with as a problem and you applied engineering to it. I, I really appreciate that. Uh, I always like to think of engineering. But it's the as, models. Uh, it's the models. It's like what I was saying before. It's it's models, right? So I yes. What I realize, what I've come, what I've come to realize is that that's how I approach life. So if somebody says to me, "Oh, there's this thing called feng shui uh, that dictates how you should you should build your house, right? And you should never build the toilet facing the front door because if the front door's open and the toilet door's open and the toilet seats up, then the the chi energy will flow out the front door and you'll lose all your money, right? If someone says that to me, I'm like okay, that's an interesting model. Show me, you know, show me some examples of that happening with the door open and the door closed and the money being lost, you know, and, uh, if you can show me, then I'll, you know, then I'll, I'll start to buy into it. And usually they disappear very quickly. And so, you know, I might, I might sound, I don't know if I'm sounding arrogant, but I'm trying to explain, this is how I run my life. Because for me it works, and I and and I mentioned religion earlier on. You know, it, I f I found the same sort of thing. I was brought up. My my mother was Catholic, and my father was essentially uh, atheist, though that term wasn't used in those days. And uh, so I think I had quite a balanced upbringing. But I had to deal with uh, the religion because I had to go to church every week and all that kind of stuff. You know, and I found it really difficult because whenever I asked questions. They either weren't answered or I was told I shouldn't ask those questions, you know, so, uh, so anyway, so, so, but you know, you start building models or if you're, if you're me, you start building models and you start being attracted to engineering and, and science because you can, you can do really cool stuff and you can get really good answers reliably, you know, and uh, what was interesting to me about music, I keep batting around, I realize, but I mean, this is, this is what life is, is like for me. It's not about. I'm an engineer or I'm a musician. That's not how it's been for me. I, I, I like to be a bit of a bit of all of them. Um, but what I found when I played the piano was that, you know, what I liked about the piano was that whatever you put in, you get back, right? And there's no dishonesty. Um, 
you, you can learn more and get better, but it's never going to give you a, a dishonest answer when you start to play, you know? So <laughs> it's a lot easier playing the piano than it is um, relating to people because you never know what's going to happen with people. Right? So <laughs> yeah, totally. This no, all sounds like cool. autism, right? <laughs> no. <laughs> no. I think, I think, no, what I wanted to say, um, there's a lot of talk these days about neurodiversity and um, I'm not saying, I'm not saying I'm autistic, uh, but I think, you know, people talk these days a lot about being, you know, everyone's on the spectrum to a certain degree. And when I look at the jazz world, um, I do wonder why it's 95% male and, you know, if not higher than that. Um, I know it's changing these days somewhat, but the change is coming through very slowly. And I wonder whether, you know, the requirement to to know hundreds of tunes and be able to play them in, 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 in all keys is kind of a, you know, requires you to do so much woodshedding, as it was called from Charlie Parker's day, that, you know, most people have a life and, and, and don't want to do that, you know. And I think there are more there are more men that may be a little bit on the spectrum that are drawn to doing that than there are women. <laughs> I don't know. It's just an idea. Yeah. I mean, science, I think would back that up too. I mean, if you look at studies of men versus like, you know, the gendered studies, men overwhelmingly uh, would prefer doing, how was it put? I was, I read this recently and it really stuck with me. It was like overwhelmingly prefer to do rigorous tasks alone versus women who want to be, you know, tend to want to be more social um, and do things with other people. Yeah. I mean, there's also the studies of babies, like male babies, like are attracted to like objects where female babies are attracted to faces. Um, you know, I think there's yes. something to that as well. And personally, I think we've like, gone, I think we've gone. Sorry, well, we've, sorry, we've veered I'm off. I'll bring, it, I'll bring us, I'll bring us back. It'll, it's okay. Uh, you know, no, I, I, I think personally, I, 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 go on, yeah, go I was all I was going to say please. is that, Folks who are, you know, quote unquote, on the spectrum, being both in technology you know, as my day job and, you know, music is something that I've done throughout my life. I run into a lot of those folks and something about, you know, the, the tasks of it and the mentality of it, they tend to be drawn to it. And they also tend to be really fucking good, like, you know, shockingly good yeah. at both of those disciplines. Yeah, I think we've gone through a period of, I don't know when it would have been, but I think we've gone through a period of years where you know everyone was expected to try and be equal and, and equal as in the same and i think we're entering a new a new era now where things you know terms are emerging like neurodiversity and uh, i think we're entering a period of celebrating uh, different abilities and and acknowledging that um, you know in a company for example you might want to employ people for different reasons with different skills and you know um it's good to have neurodiverse people for certain roles and and you wouldn't want them for other roles you know and let's uh let's celebrate people's strengths and let's let's stop trying to make everyone be good at everything because i yes. think that's <laughs> that's not how it works yeah no i completely agree with you and it goes back to the whole kind of you know chaos idea earlier that you know, you don't want the one way isn't the only way if it's learning music or, or how to be a person. Uh, diversity in, in all aspects is better. Um, switching back a little bit, 
I want to dive into the method, but before we do that, I want to ask, like, if you can give me a quick, well, the listeners really, a quick understanding of what is jazz. Like, we, you know, jazz is something that's said a lot and it's a, you know, a genre, but kind of what is a definitive, that something, something that definitively makes it jazz versus blues versus, you know, anything else. Well, I think an academic, well, an academic definition of jazz it, that, that you sometimes hear is any kind of music that involves improvisation. So, and, and, and that's a very, very high level statement. And therefore, and if you take that definition, which a lot of people wouldn't, disagree, wouldn't agree with, then, you know, you end up including all sorts of musics, which are nothing to do with uh, the US of A, where obviously jazz, jazz came from. Um, but I mean, I think it's very hard to say what is jazz, especially now it's, you know, so long since it first kind of appeared. Um, but the improvisation element is, is really important. Um, it used to be thought, you know, that jazz, because it kind of emerged into the kind of swing era, that it was all about swing music, but, you know, times have changed and, there's so many different kinds, Latin jazz and uh, fusion and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And we've been through periods where the only way you can get an arts grant is to, is, is for, for a jazz musician to get an arts grant in, in, in this country was to, was to make some kind of fusion music. Otherwise you wouldn't get any money, you know? So it's, 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 it's definitely, it's definitely changed. I, I know, I, know I, I, I gave you an answer at the beginning and I'm trying to knock it down like a, like a straw man kind of thing, because, I think it's impossible to say what is jazz. Um, um, the kind of jazz that I like is the jazz from the sixties. Okay. And so it's very bebop influenced, very swing influenced. And it's before all of that, uh, 1970s era, um, uh, fusion with rock and, and other kinds of musics came in. So, so for me, jazz is all about that, that, that sweet spot of the, 50s and the 60s but that's not answering your question so much that's that's uh, that's running away and saying here's what i like <laughs> <laughs> well i feel like what what you're really saying is that jazz as a genre is hard to pin down um but it it, it is but it involves improvisation it, it, it that's right and 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 the, but the, but the, the thing is right when we're going to be talking about this book and the method um what it what so there's a core of jazz where you're kind of you're kind of expected to know lots of jazz standards, okay? Songs that came essentially mostly from show songs, the Broadway show songs, the, what, the, what the people sometimes call the Great American Songbook. You know, you're expected to know hundreds of these standards if you want to be a jazz musician. And that's great, and I love that. And that's what my book's about, is, is that memorizing those kind of jazz songs because they have... A kind of functional harmony which was then you know when the musicians got bored after the 60s through the 70s and beyond they had to do something else because they, that had already been done that functional harmony got destroyed and that's not so the stuff after that period is not what my book applies to it's about how do you learn the jazz from that era you know with the the, the great american songbook jazz but obviously jazz has evolved many many decades after that time and the challenge for jazz itself is how do you retain an audience uh, and how do you retain students that want to, well, even if that's the right word, you know, how do you retain players who want to play the stuff 
when um, they have to learn, you know, say 200 or 300 songs from an era that was so long before they were even born, before they can get started on doing what they want to do in, in contributing to the, to the music. Do you see what I mean? So yeah. um, in the same way that classical music is largely um, frozen, and I, I just I look at classical musicians and I think, well, why do they... I mean, I love Bach and all that kind of stuff. That music's fantastic, but why do they want to spend their life just learning to play something that's from such a long time ago? Um, and that's what most of them do in the class in the classical world. Um, and some of them play some contemporary stuff, but the contemporary stuff's from you know nineteen hundred or something, you know. So I don't know. It's it's all a bit weird, and I know I'm shooting myself in the foot with this because. I, exactly the same thing applies to jazz um you know the the students coming out of music college now which of course jazz never was about music college but there are now jazz music colleges in the states they've been for a long time but in the uk you know we've had them for i don't know 20 years or something there are students coming out of these every every year you know lots of them uh, and there are fewer and fewer jazz gigs because you know, there are other musics out there that people want to hear. And so we're training people up better and better to do something that's not around, not really available. <laughs> so it's a funny, it's a funny, 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 funny world. But yeah. I'm just, you know, I'm, I'm not, a, I'm not, a, I, I didn't go to music college. So I'm kind of a, an outsider just observing this world, really. Yeah, I think there's, I mean, we, we can uh, have a uh, bracket on that if we, if we ended up opening the door, but I think there's always a divide between what is popular and what is in academia. There's a kind of a push and pull. Sometimes academia is, you know, tip of the spear and sometimes it's lagging behind. I think in particular in jazz, I, I feel like it's uh, might be uh, uh, lagging behind a little bit because you got like folks like Robert Gl- uh, Glasper, uh, who's an American out of LA, who's like doing like interesting jazz, beboppy, hip hoppy kind of fusion stuff. I mean, you have like, I mean, if you really want to go into the zeitgeist, you have like uh, Kendrick Lamar who brought in a jazz musician to do the music for his album that he won a Pulitzer. You know what I mean? So jazz is alive in, in ways, but it's not alive in the ways that I guess you're uh, expressing as the standards of kind of what's literally been the standard for jazz. You know, like you think of like Dave Brubeck, you know, and Take Five inventing a, a new jazz standard um, and all those type of things that isn't as much in the, the zeitgeist anymore. But Part of me wonders if jazz is entering almost like a, a blues phase. So I heard B.B. King once say that blues was for the kids that were uh, grew up on the street and jazz was for the folks that went to college. Uh, and I wonder now if the kind of the real world jazz musicians, the folks that are out there making music and, and propagating it are more of the ones that are, are learning it themselves and saying like, oh, this phrase is really interesting. Uh, I really like this or the way that it flows and you know, the happy harmonies that you can kind of throw in that are known for jazz and, and infusing it in things. Um, which brings me back. So I think this to, is, Oh, go ahead. This has been happening. I mean, this has been happening for um, a long time. You know, when I, I mean, so I'm, I was born in 1965. So the Beatles were just before I was born. And then they, they obviously continued for, uh, uh, to the, to the end of the sixties, but um, I wasn't aware of them because I was too young. And there wasn't that much music in my in my house. There was there was no pop music in my house at, at that time. So, but you know, when I look back and listen to the Beatles, I love that stuff, right? And it's really clear from their harmonies that they were using 
that their parents were listening to jazz and that they must have heard jazz. You know, and there are, you know, just really interesting things happen. I mean, to get technical for a while, you know, at the end of one of their songs, they decided they wanted to put a major six chord on the end of the song. And uh, they were advised by the guy helping them with their, with their recordings that, oh, that's really old-fashioned, you don't want to do that. But they, it was like they'd never heard it before. They thought it was really modern, and they wanted to do it, and they did do it, and they kept it in there. And, of course, their generation loved it. But it's just, it's one of the most old-fashioned sounds from the Glenn Miller kind of era, you know, that you could, that you can have, in jazz, that you can imagine. But because the music they were doing was all um, rock and roll-based and uh, triad-based and, you know, no chord extensions, which is what jazz is all about, you know, it was a really cool sound to them. And they probably did it because they probably heard it in their parents' record collection or something, you know? Yeah. So I think that's been happening. It's been happening for years, but the but sending jazz to college is a, is an interesting thing. You know, obviously that's not where it came from. And for BB King, if BB King said that, I, I've never heard that before. Um, but I mean, maybe there was some resentment in the college bit. I, I don't know. But you know, jazz didn't come from college. Jazz went to college. <laughs> and uh, you you hear, I mean, Barry Barry Harris. Uh, he's a bebop pianist who died just a few months ago. And he, he used to rail against the college system, something something really heavy. You know, he, he'd say, well, what do they know about it? You know, because he, he played with Charlie Parker. He played with, you know, he used to live with Monk. He, he, he you know, and, and he used to teach the way that they thought about it. And that was really, he was a really interesting insight to how they actually thought about the music. You know, going back to the models again, you could hear his, he would talk about his model and that was that's really interesting to me because I want to know what other people's models are and someone who was actually there, you know, what he discovered and what and what worked for him is super interesting to me. Um, and then you know, older music that's developed since is very legitimate, but he was dismissing it all because it wasn't what they did, right? And that's really interesting as well. That's really interesting as well, right? Because it's not real jazz because. It's been invented at college or by people who've been to college, you know. Right. So the problem, the problem that he had with, with those sort of statements was that he would be instantly dismissing Bill Evans and and everyone after that, you know, which obviously doesn't make any sense either. But yeah, it's a it's it's really interesting. I prefer I prefer the jazz before the college stuff. I would say. Um. But that's just because I'm really into the 50s and 60s stuff. Yeah, I'm all over the board. I, I really like Stan Getz a lot. I like uh, Gerald Gilberto and like the whole Bossa Nova movement. I like that to sometimes my wife's dismay a bit too much. Uh, I also like Dave Brubeck a lot. I, his, his use of inversions I, I find very fun. Um, but switching, I, there's so much I can go off of that, but switching back to the kind of the method of your book. Um, so we, we have this great understanding of jazz being a bit slippery to understand. And like most things it's defined by what you want to define it as, um, which has these, these standards. And uh, as an aside, I find it so fun that if, you know, from the outside, people think that uh, at least in America, that jazz is all prim and proper and everyone who plays it is all prim and proper. And it's like, man, if you go into any of these guys lives, you're going to realize that they were actually more like rock stars than what you're thinking. They were like cocktail lounge people, which is fun to me. Um, but anyways, yeah. Uh, you know, that it's improvisational and it has like kind of standards or playbooks that define it. Um, so how does your method 
use that as a means to play, understand it, and in you know, in a key independent. So to make this, you know, a, a bit uh, broad, so that anyone listening has a little bit of a basis, probably going to start getting academic quick, which is fine. Um, key independent just means like, you know, a lot of the Beatles songs, for example, are in the key of C. If you wanted to play it in a different key, play it in G. Um, you'd be able to transcribe it so that the you know the the way the chords are in different uh, places would you know mirror it in such a way that it would still sound like the same song, um, even though the the baseline tone that it's based off of is different. So, how does your method break it down, break down a song, and actually make it in a in a means to be able to you know I don't know if you where you want to start if you want to start with the key independent thing or just being able to break it down, listen to it and be able to to pick up an instrument and play it. So yeah, there's a lot in there. Um, what basically what it is is it's trying to um, trying to take advantage of kind of what the memory experts have uncovered, I guess. So you know, I'm sure you've heard of things like chunking. If you want to memorize something, break it into chunks, right? They call it chunking, and it becomes you know something that's long and difficult to memorize suddenly becomes relatively easy if you can chunk it, right? Use chunking. So a good example of that is that most jazz standards, the form of the song is uh, 32 bars long, most most of them. Uh, when I say bars, I mean measures <laughs> for, for people in the States. Um, but, um, you know, so you've got eight, uh, and, and, th- and that's broken into four sections of eight, of eight bars long each, right? So you typically get a song that... Uh, you can imagine it as a brick wall. If you drew a diagram of it, there'd be a brick wall and there'd be eight measures, eight measures, eight measures, eight measures, four of them. Now, then it, then it becomes, okay, what's inside those? What is the, What are the chords that we need to memorize? So this is about memorizing chords, by the way, not about memorizing melodies so much, uh, which is a different challenge altogether. Um, but as a, as a jazz pianist playing in a jam session, you've got to be able to supply the chords behind people to a song without any music in whatever key they want to play in, right? So there's 12 possible keys it could be in, uh, representing the 12 different notes on the piano, okay? And that's, the, like, as you said, that's the that's the bass note, the starting point of where you, where you might start. And then you've got to, you've got to realize on the keyboard the, the, whole, the whole harmony of the song um, relative to that, uh, that starting point. So you need to, understand what the chords are in the first place but the but then translate it into a way that uh, is key independent so right so stepping back again what i was talking about was the form of the song so in order to not get lost it's really important that you know the form of the song um so i analyzed 300 songs and the vast majority are 32 bars long not all of them but they are most of them are and they're in four eight bar sections uh and then further analysis showed that um, half of those songs are in what we call AABA form. So the first eight bars, which we call that A, and this is chunking, by the way, uh, the second the second eight bars will be the same as the first eight bars. So it's another A, AA. And then you have a bridge or a release, as some people call it. So it's a, a contrasting section, uh, eight bars, which we call B, and then you, you, you finish the song off with, a, with, with another A. Now, this is such a good format 
because it gives you them it gives you exactly what humans need right so it gives you a statement of something in the first eight bars a restatement of something because listeners don't want to just hear new stuff all the time they want to hear something they've just heard before so that's very good for humans to enjoy listening to and then they want something contrasting so you get the bridge and then you want a recapitulation if you like which is the the a stated again and it turns out this is very similar to what classical musicians have been doing for hundreds of years right they, they have in classical music they have sonata form and uh, other other forms that they would use you know beethoven and, and mozart and in, in their symphonies they would do exactly this this sort of thing but the show song writers it turns out for the jazz songs that we're talking about they would use the most common form is AABA, and that's chunking because three out of four of those sections are actually the same. They're all A's. So if you learn eight bars of this song, you have learned three quarters of the song. Right, so that's the advantage of chunking. And then all you've got to learn after that is is what the, what the bridge is, and you've got the whole song down. Um, so that's kind of like... That's what I call in my book, the meta view. I like to take, you know, I take the 30,000 foot view, look down on the song and to understand what its form, we call it the form, what its form is. And it's really important when you're learning a song that you understand the form of the song and because that's what stops you getting lost. Um, right. So say you're, say you're playing in a jam session and you find that you are lost. Uh, for some reason, you, you started thinking about, you know, did you leave the gas on or whatever at home? And, and suddenly you realize that you don't know where you are in the song and the whole band around you is playing. You know, one, one strategy would be, okay, listen now for when you hear the bridge start. And when you hear the bridge start, because it's the contrasting section, you know you're at the beginning of the bridge and therefore you know where you are again, right? So that's the kind of survival. That's, that's what we do. And that, but if you didn't know it was an AABA form song, it wouldn't help you to, when you heard the bridge, it wouldn't help you because you still wouldn't know where you were. So, so that's the right. starting point. Start with the form. And then we start to look within these chunks and say, well, what, what's going on there? You know, we look at collections of chords um, that are very commonly occur and we give them names so that we can remember them because you know giving things names makes them easier to memorize so as long as you understand what they are then naming them means you don't have to say oh it's a you know say a common a common turnaround in jazz is one is one six two five one right that's chord one chord two chord six chord five then it goes back to one and it's just a it's just a cycle of fifths it turns out but that's very strong harmony which Bach would have used and Mozart would have used and so on but it's very common in jazz because good harmony is good harmony, right? So, so that so that's a kind of chunk that you want, and it's used a lot because it confirms the the key the key of the song and all that kind of stuff. So it's really useful, and you'll see it is possibly the most common uh, what we call a brick. We call these bricks because it's like a brick wall metaphor. Okay, so you're building a building a wall that represents the song, and um, so say it starts with one six two five. We'll call that a turnaround. And so now all we have to remember is it's AABA and it starts with a turnaround. And that, so we've, we've memorized the first half of the A section. And because the A section is three quarters of the song, then we've, we've memorized a lot of the song in almost no time at all. And you get to the point where 
once you've kind of got to grips with this way of thinking about things, where a singer can come come up with a, a song, you know, give you a sheet, and, and you look at it and you say, okay, all right, starts it's in ABA form, starts with a turnaround, okay, and you can put the sheet face down on top of the piano and play it without even looking at it, even though you've never seen that song before, because the you know you know the landmarks to look for. Does that make sense? It does make sense. Yeah. Um, so what you're, okay. Well, first off, I love seeing the pattern in things, especially in art and AABA is very similar to like stand, you know, the way stanzas are formed in poetry, right? Like rhyme and meter right. and those type of things, right? It's very similar, except for, uh, perhaps maybe the expressions are longer in uh, music, right? Um, which I find and that these, interesting. And these, are, and these are songs, right? So they will have words. Um, right. That's that's one of the big changes that that happened with jazz. You know, once once the jazz musicians started to write their own songs, then sometimes they'd have words, and and often they wouldn't, and they would they would they would move into a different kind of music, and they weren't songs anymore. But the the, the show songs we're talking about would have words, and that's another reason. That's another reason why, as you just said, you know why they have these kind of formats because you want to repeat. Uh, you might want to have a chorus. You might you might have a verse in front of this. You know, the the show songs that we're talking about, the bit that the jazz musicians often play on is is the chorus part. Um, singers like Ella Fitzgerald have recorded fantastic albums of all the great uh, songwriters, um, and she would often sing the verses. Uh, many jazz musicians don't know the verses and they don't learn them because, you know, they just want to improvise. They want a vehicle to improvise on. So what they do is they learn the chorus. They play the tune of the chorus, and then they play a, a very large number of improvisational choruses, and then get back to the tune of the chorus, and they, and then they stop. And that's the that's the that's the format they use, you know. But yeah, you're right. They do have words, and they are, and therefore they're very closely linked with poetry. Yeah, the Gershwin's a great example of a lot of what the show turns show tunes or that jazzy uh, age that you're talking about, because you know. Uh, I'm sure most Americans probably know Gershwin from the Fantasia cartoon and Rhapsody in Blue. Um, but, you know, he, he I really enjoy the stuff that he wrote with his uh, brother. And it was more like for pop songs, you know, like it, it, there's they're so swingy. They're so like, you know, uh, I got my guy and who can ask for anything more is like a, probably the one that's most you know, uh, stuck in people's brain. But, you know, summertime and like all those, you know, different types of swingy things. Um, are quite are quite good. Uh, they sound fresh too. If you can, if you, if you listen to them, I'm always surprised if I go a couple of years without listening to them, like how fresh and almost uh, modern they sound, just because of kind of the elevation and the uh, mood that they bring. Um, so, so going to the method. Yeah, so, Gershwin. oh, go ahead. Yeah, please hang. I will talk about Gershwin. Gershwin. Whenever, so go right ahead. Gershwin, Gershwin is amazing, um, and you're right, especially with his brother um, Ira. Um, one of my favorite lines from one of their songs, I think it's called, <coughs> I think it's, uh, I can't remember what the song's called, but the line is, I'm biding my time. That's the kind of gal I'm. And <laughs> I think that's one of the best, one of the best rhymes I've heard in a song, really. But anyway, yeah, yeah Gershwin he's... is definitely, um, Gershwin's right up there. George Gershwin's right up there with the jazz standards. I mean, his harmony I mean, it kind of, it kind of, 
is jazz, really. I mean, the, there are so many of the chunks of the harmony that, that are in the method in the book uh, come from from his songs, you know. Um, yeah, just incredible. Yeah, I mean, the the whole Amer- and American in Paris just blows me away every time I go listen to that whole the whole album. And uh, Rhapsody in Blue is just such a such a force. Um, his the his yeah. use of key and harmony is just and rhythm like the way that he uses rhythm as harmony in parts too is just absolutely astounding. Um, so okay, so y- y- your method, if we're going back to it, you kind of think of the broad chunks of the song and the broad chunks are most likely what it's going to be. Then you break those into bricks um, and kind of, and and how do you go from hearing the song to being able to hear? Um, you know, if this is too abstract of a question, you know, please, you know, answer it whichever way you can. But really what I'm, I want to understand is if you hear a tune, do you guess that it's one, two, five, six, one, or do you listen for something? Do you kind of like play around? Like what, how, what helps you define the individual bricks? And then especially the bricks and like the parts that's the turn or the, you know, the um, bridge or, or whatnot. So when you, so a big part of learning to play jazz is is transcribing um, because what you're trying to do is you want to sound like your favorite jazz musician okay so you end up transcribing the masters the worst way of learning jazz is to uh, is to learn it from books okay so i don't i'm not talking about my kind of book i'm talking about the kind of book where you have jazz standards written as sheet music and um, you know the worst thing you could do is be well enough trained in classical music and then buy a book of jazz standards and go and learn learn them all uh, from the sheet music because you don't really you you don't you don't get any of the feel of the the swing or whatever it is the whatever the groove is that's being played it's not there on the paper and it's impossible to capture it on the paper because it's always an approximation when you write it down and the pictures you wouldn't hear you know the actual blue note you wouldn't be able to it's always an approximation when you write them down. So you need to listen to the actual thing. And it's much what you learn uh, if you've got a good jazz teacher or if you're doing it the the right way, I, w- I would argue, is that you know the way that the early jazz musicians did it is the right way. And that's to, it's an oral tradition and you learn it from other players and you either get hold of their recordings and this is what they did. You know, when a new record came out, they would all scrabble to buy it and they would, it would be a 78 and they would drop the needle on the 78 over and over again until they worked out what, what the what the song was and what the solo was that the guy was playing or whatever and they transcribe it that way and transcribing by the way <clears throat> doesn't have to mean writing it down it just means getting it off getting it off the um the recording or the or whatever you've got into your into your ears and onto your instrument um, I know I know transcribing sounds like it, it is writing it down and literally it is but uh, and sometimes it, it requires that but you but it's even better if you can miss out the writing down stage because what you want is the immediacy that you alluded to earlier on in this conversation of well how do you play what you hear or how do you if you have an idea how how can you get to the point where you can just play what you've got in your head and the answer is hours and hours and hours of transcribing so it starts with, okay, um, I want to take, I want to learn this new song. Um, so well, the best thing to do is to is to make sure you've got the right chords, and the way you get the right chords is by listening to the bass line right first. So, f- 
first of all, you, you'll take down the bass line and that will give you the, the root notes of the chords uh, to a large degree. And, and, and then the second stage is, well, what quality are the chords? Well, are they major? Are they minor or whatever? So then you listen for that. But what's the note above the bass note? And is it major or minor? Right, tick, got that. And then the next stage is, well, you know, what extension does it have that will determine the function of the harmony? And, you know, and, and it's painstaking to start with, right? When you first thing doing, you're literally getting a note at a time. But you very quickly get to the point where you go, okay, that's a major seven. That's a dominant seven. You know, you hear it, you hear it, and you know you've done it before. You know, you hear it. Okay, that's a, a that's a major seven. What's the root note? It's an E flat, right? It's an E flat major seven. Great. You know, and you've got that, and then so then you can very quickly capture the the basic chords in the framework of the the form of the song, and then you, if you want to transcribe a solo or the tune. It's so much, you know, after that, it's so much easier. But yes, it does look incredibly daunting to start with. But it's just a question of putting in the time. I don't know if people have the time these days. But that's a different question. People got a lot of time to scroll. I'm sure they have a lot of time to, to play some music. Uh, <laughs> uh, the thing is, actually, my, my, I was talking about this with, with my, with my um, partner, Jill, the other day, uh, you know, in terms of when we when we were kids in the sixties and seventies, um, most of our time we were really bored, and so we made sure we got hobbies like music or whatever, right? Because you need something to do. And we're looking at our kids now, and we're thinking they they never need to be bored, right? Because there's the internet and anything that can supply, and and they don't seem to have passionate hobbies in the way that we did. So I don't know. I mean, there are still there's some great musicians out there that are coming coming through, but I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. What do you think? Does, does I'm worried it about. I'm worried about the lack of boredom on the whole. Like I, I think the the zeit, cultural zeitgeist right now. My wife and I talk about this a, a lot, actually, especially because we're on the other side of it. We're you know planning to start having kids at some point soon. Um, the the. Not, you kids need to be bored. I think people need to be bored. Like, you know, take kids out of it. I think people need to be bored. You know, I mean, um, I think the best ideas and the best things and the kind of the passion for life tends to come out of those boredom, but also it's a, it's required. I think like you're going to have to go through moments where you're going to be bored. And, and I mean, if it's standing in a DMV line or if it's, you know, waiting in an airport, like it's just going to be frustrating and, and filling that time with something I think is important. It's an important life skill. But also, I mean, like, if I want to become more scientific as an answer, um, Edison, you know, uh, the uh, uh, electric guy, he uh, used to take naps holding a big brass ball bearing uh, and stare at a wall until he would fall asleep out of boredom. And then he would fall asleep. <laughs> but after shortly after falling asleep, he wouldn't be able to hold the ball. So the ball would drop and it would wake him up. And he said that all of his good ideas came out of that, where he would be bored, literally lull himself to sleep out of boredom, and somehow the act of doing that would spark ideas. Leonardo da Vinci, the whole like sleeping every you know period of time, the interval training that he did with his body was all because it would spark ideas and come to him. Um, Einstein would you know play a piano, and play a piano until he was starting to feel sleepy, and then all of a sudden the ideas would come, and he would go back into his study and, and write about them. Um, so I, I think that you need boredom in order to know how to interact in life, which is, I worry about that. 
uh, with our kind of coming scrolling generations. Um, but also I think it, it brings inspiration. Now, I would say the flip side of that is I do have a lot of faith uh, in the kind of the future because for as much as there is going to be a large number of people that are kind of victims to the circumstance of our time, meaning we got this technology and we don't know what to do with it because technology by, you know, quote, we show technology, technology will always outpace our morality, right? So being able to contend with it is going to be a slower process than all of a sudden, like, boom, we have this thing that we just figured out and created. What do we do with this now? And how do we incorporate this in our culture? That's always going to take time. Um, however, I meet so many people that are just like, I mean, fantastic musicians at an age that I would never have been able to like do that. Like I, I know I had this golf pro analogy where, you know, you go to a golf course and the person who's the requisite golf pro that teaches everybody is better at that golf course than everybody else. Right. But you know, they think, you know, the people who go to the country club think like, Oh my God, you should be on the PGA tour. What are you doing in this golf course? And he's like, no, no, you don't understand. I'm great at golf. But I'm because of how good I am, I understand the difference between me and Tiger Woods is massive, even though it's it's a little bit. But that's just because I know more to be able to understand how much I'm not Tiger Woods. Right. So, like, I'm a good musician. I'm better than a lot of people for sure. But I also can understand when I see somebody who's just electric. I'm just like, I could never touch that in a way that is is deep. And I see so many people who are 14, 15, 16 that are doing things that I couldn't fathom doing. And I mean, like, I grew up, like, trying to mimic Jimi Hendrix and Eddie Van Halen and Stevie Ray Vaughan and Buddy Guy, right? So I have tricks. I have things that are, like, impressive that I could do. But as far as melding them together in a way that I've never seen that is, like, so technically sound and fall in and out of different melodies and phrases, and that is 100% a process of the internet and being able to have people both teach you these things and also just the exposure of it, you know, like I would have to go and rent videos of Jimi Hendrix from the library when I first started playing. Cause I couldn't just go on YouTube. There wasn't YouTube to be able to see those videos, you know, where now you have that. So such as to say, I think there are people who are kind of falling prey to never being bored, but there is also people that are able to harness that same bug as a feature to say, well, I'm just going to go attack this thing and I'm going to be able to, to do something and I'm going to get really great at it. What, you know, what that's going to do over the course of time, I think we'll all see, but I think it's, it, it could very well lead to a resurgence in a lot of things that we weren't expecting. I think you're right. There is definitely a, there's a big positive side to this. Um, you know, um, I couldn't, I, you know, I, I sell my book on the internet. I use PayPal to take currencies from anywhere around the world. If I'd had to go and find a print book publisher, I don't think I would have bothered. Right. Really, really, you know, because it was just something I was doing on the side as a, as a consequence of some work that I'd done for myself, you know, like I described earlier on. Um, it wasn't, it wasn't my main job. It wasn't some, it wasn't something I had to do. It's just something I thought would be useful and has turned out to be, you know, something that people continue to want to buy. And that's great, but it's not a, it's, I couldn't live off the income, you know, but nor could I do it. Uh, um, and, and if, if I was relying on a, a, a physical book publisher, I probably wouldn't be able to find one because it's such a niche area. And, uh, and then 
you know, by the time you take out the costs of printing and all that kind of stuff, there'd be nothing left. So it also it also wouldn't make any money at all. So so there are some real advantages to do, to, to having access to the internet and all the things that come from it, PDF formats and PayPal uh, payment methods, other pay, other secure payment methods, and all that kind of stuff. You know. So and I completely agree. And everyone um, seems to believe that the way they get established is by giving away their how-to videos uh, for free. So that's uh, that's quite an interesting consequence. What well, you know, I hope they do make some money. <laughs> but there's a lot. But there's a lot of there's a lot of stuff out there, right, for free, which is actually um, you know, if, if you can separate out what's good from what's not so good, then there's a, there's some good stuff out there. Yeah. No. Totally. And it seems to be the internet is kind of, you know, I I think the algorithm algorithms are kind of. I mean, they're quite literally like the the documents even say that the people that wrote them, you know, they're trying to go down the brainstem to kind of attract our emotions that are going to keep us engaged. That's really what they're designed to do. And I feel like that kind of fogs a lot of the benefits of the internet. Because one of the things that I'm seeing in the community is what you said, like people trying to get more people into that. You know, like I like Corey Wong, like I like his musician as a musician. I also really like he's a guitarist, uh, if you're not familiar with him. Um, but I also like him as a person. And one of the things I find is interesting is he's like, he does like, you know, tours and like theaters, like, you know, he's going around the U S and I think he's even on a world tour this year. Um, you know, selling out, you know, big theaters. So he's like fairly popular musician, but he's still selling guitar courses on his website, you know, like how to, uh, you know, play his music and, and all that kind of stuff, which is totally a byproduct of the internet. You know, you would never have seen you know, somebody, or even like John Mayer, who's like a couple years before him, you know, he's not doing those kind of things, but now he is with the internet, you know, even he's doing like YouTubes of how to play songs and things like that. And, you know, if you go the, maybe Robert Cray would be the eighties equivalent of John Mayer. You know, he wouldn't do those things. He wouldn't think to do those things because the medium wasn't there. Um, so there is, there is benefits to it, you know, and the, the community that's emerging out of it, which is, which is really great. Um, Okay, so if I'm, I'm going to go back again. So your method, find the baseline, understand the notes in the baseline, figure out from the, um, you know, the, the note before it and the note after it, if it's a major or minor chord that that would be, then transcribe that into, you know, what, whatever is your, your instrument of choice, you know, piano or, or guitar or, you know, whatever it may be. Um, and then use that as a means to understand the different phrases, so or bricks, as you put it, right? So the the intro yeah. part of it, the next part of it, the next part of it, and then keep doing that from yeah. section to section. Is that kind of the the overall methodology? Yeah. So in, in jazz, um, if you start to learn jazz in terms of chord progressions, the first thing you'll learn about is is what they call two five one, right? Because it's the most common three chords that you'll see in a row together. Okay, and and. You'll find this other other progressions as well. So two five one we call a cadence, okay, and so that's one of the bricks in the method as well. There, but there are all sorts. Like I talked about a turnaround earlier on, you know, a one six two five one. It's 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 got a a one six in front of a two five one, but it's another kind of brick that you'll see. And yeah, songs are constructed of this kind of stuff, and so the challenge then becomes: okay, I know it's made up of a turnaround and a cadence and whatever you know, all, all joined together, but how are they joined together is the question. Like, you know, um, cause you need, in, okay. You need, first step is learn to play the bricks, which is a sequence of chords. 
Second step is learn to join bricks together. And what makes jazz songs so great is uh, compared to maybe blues and a lot of pop songs is that the, the harmony is pretty advanced and you will get interesting key changes or modulations as, as sometimes called. Um, and in order to do that, you have to be able to join bricks in more esoteric ways than you might otherwise expect to find them within the key. Um, so Conrad, who in his book that put this method forward, he came up with the idea of joins. So the two things that you have are bricks and joins. And because he, he had a computer science background as well, he, uh, he, you know, he took it to the extreme and he said, well, okay, there are, what, what interval might you go from the end of the previous brick to the beginning of the first one? Well, there are 12 possible intervals before you start to repeat, uh, you know, outside of the octaves, there are 12 notes on the piano, therefore there are 12 possible interviews, intervals that you might move between the bricks. And so he defined 12 joins and he gave them all names and he found songs in which these joins occurred and gave them, tried to give them names that people would remember because they occurred in certain songs, you know. It's, it was all trying to, you know, help you learn about the the environment that we're all trying to learn about, which is jazz standards, right? So my analysis went, took that a bit further and said, okay, 12 joins, that's fine. But what I'm finding when I look at my 300 standards is that actually most of those joins don't occur ever. Uh, there's about three or four occur an awful lot. And then there are actually other things that happen to allow you to join bricks together which occur more commonly than the rest of the joins. So, you know, it was interesting. I was really enjoying taking his idea, um, but making it more complete and more rigorous by actually applying it to rather than just 24 songs. He applied it to 24 songs in his book and he wrote down in a kind of a wordy way, his analysis of those songs. Whereas I took 300 odd songs, 320 I think it was odd songs and and I made, in a spreadsheet, I made a brick wall and wrote down exactly what the bricks were for each bar and exactly what the join was between adjacent bricks in the song. Um, and, you know, I found that sometimes it was inappropriate to talk about joins. I don't want to get too technical. I think it's just, it's not going to be interesting to someone who hasn't started the method, but, you know, it got really nerdy and engineering-y and... Uh, something I had to do to understand it myself. And, and what I found was that I could solve it all um, and I could generate extra stuff that you need to build a, build a song in real life. But actually, um, you know, several years later, what I found was that having learned 200 songs, you know, memorized them and be able to play them and done it for a few years, what I found was that I was, I, you, you just stop thinking. You just stop thinking about that detail, okay? You need to learn that detail in order to get there, but you just stop thinking, right? So it's not, oh, oh my goodness, is it, you know, is it join number 12? Is it join number six? Or, you know, or is it, it's like, uh, okay, I can hear that. And I can play that. <laughs> and I, and it took, takes me back to that guy that I was telling you about, the flautist. Um, work it out for yourself and don't tell anybody. And suddenly it made sense, right? Because yes, 
you need a method that works for you. And, you know, I'm not saying don't buy my book, uh, but nor am I saying you need my book, right? Because it depends on what works for you and what stage you're at and what kind of person you are and what kind of neurodiversity you might have. <laughs> Bring it all back. But, you know, do you, yeah, but you see what I mean? Yes, I do. So it's like, I know, I know I'm shooting myself in the foot in terms of book sales here, right? A lot of people still buy the book and that's great. And I, I you know, it can be very useful. Uh, it got, it's got chords for, you know, loads of jazz standards in there and it, and it, t- it tells you what I think they mean. And that might have, that that should be helpful. You can disagree with it, but but that process of disagreeing will also be helpful to you in learning that song, right? So, so I'm I'm not a sales. I hate I hate salespeople, right? And I just want I like truth. I like the truth, and I want I want the truth. And this to me, this is all about understanding God's God's eye view of harmony. That's that's an expression someone used at me in a in a. I sat down with some computer scientists from the University of Edinburgh because I live in Edinburgh in Scotland. And uh, there was a guy doing an academic paper about, uh, about, you know, how could they, how could they do, how could they analyze jazz harmony so that they could write a, a tree analysis of all the harmony and uh, make, understand it all as a tree, you know? And he said, what he said, what I want is a God's eye view of, of harmony. And I thought that's, that's a really interesting expression because it, it hits on the religion thing that I really don't like, but it makes complete sense, right? If there were a maker, or even if there isn't, right, a fundamental physic, physics view of harmony, right? What is the way harmony actually works? And that's what we're trying to do. We're not, we're not, we're not, we're not trying to solve that problem because it's way too hard, but we're trying to overlay a model that's both accurate enough and simple enough for us to use in real life. So it's always an approximation, right? But, but that's, yeah, that was interesting when you said it, a God's eye view of harmony. <laughs> I like that. I like that a lot. Yeah. I also like that it's an approximation. Like, uh, I like Newton's idea, you know, calculus of an iteration where you're, you're never going to hit the line, but you're just going to keep trying to get closer yeah. and closer to it, which is also something that's used a lot in, in technology and computer science in particular. Um, yeah. I like a lot what you're saying though too. Uh, I don't feel like you're killing book sales. I think you're selling it very well without a trying, which is the best salesman. Uh, but uh, uh, I like what you said though of trying to figure it out yourself. Um, you know what? When you mentioned that, and the first time uh, in this conversation, the first thing that sparked to me was I have a really good friend of mine named Edward, and he's a musician as well. He actually built my guitar, um, and he, uh, you know, him and I were playing, and and how does he put what he's saying? Uh, Oklahoma uh, blues, I think is what he calls it. He's like, he, people that know him from music call him fast Eddie. Cause he just plays so fast, but he has a style to him that you would just never hear anywhere. It's like Tex-Mex, but it's super fast and it's super swingy. Um, and I find him incredibly impressive as a musician. And one of the times we were playing, uh, you know, we were doing some call and response and going back and forth and, and whatnot. And he just like stopped and was like, oh man, you're, you're frustrating me. And I was like, what, why am I frustrating you? Like what happened? Uh, and he's like, dude, I can never play like you. And it blew me away. Cause I'm thinking like, dude, you are so impressive. Like, what are you talking about? Like, I'm not doing anything special over here. And he's like, no man. He's like, you just ooze the blues. He's like, you just, everything you touch and everything you play. He's like, you took my phrase right there and you turned it around and somehow you made it sound like Chicago deep gritty blues. 
And I had no idea that I was sounding like that. And it completely threw me, threw me for a spin for years. Um, but what I'm really understanding from a different level now is that was where I put the work in. You know, I put the work in blues. So, you know, so like my basis of understanding of, of my styling and my groove comes from that type of perspective, which is really like, that's where I put the work in, right? I put the work in blues. So what comes out of me is blues, even if I'm not meaning to, right? Um, and really what I hear you saying is find something you're passionate about, use that as your entry point, that here's a method and a way of breaking it down to see it. And, and really but what you need to do is, is find what it is that's, you know, passionate and what's going to be the entry point for you and put in the work because, you know, the, the, the one thing you can't, uh, cheat is time. And, you know, if you want to yeah. become a good musician, it's the time that you have to put into it. And there's many ways going back again to the book of five rings. There's many ways to get there. Um, but just putting in the time, figuring it out and seeking methods, even if the method doesn't work for you and maybe your method or another method, like the jet, you know, the, I like the circle of fifths. Uh, I do like your, your method as well, quite a bit in the way of breaking things down in, into blocks. Um, you know, the, the CEO of Ableton, like the music software company, I read, he has a book and I read his book and it, one of the things that I took out of it that I do rather frequently now, actually, is he said, hey, if you really like a song and you really don't like a song, sit down and write out why. Is it the, the melody you don't like? Is it the rhythm you don't like? Is it the music you don't like or you like or whatever it is? Explain in words, like explain to yourself why you do or don't like that. Because just the act of doing that helps you understand music in a deeper level. And that's, you know, as a musician, that's, you know, it goes back to the truth. Like, that's what I feel like we should try to seek. We should try to seek understanding and being an ex expression. Um, and what you're saying really is this is one way of, of getting there that might be chunking to help you move along a little faster. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I was, I was thinking also, um, one of the things that Conrad says in his book is that uh, bebop, is the lingua franca of um, of jazz, right? So it doesn't matter what kind of jazz you play. If you haven't learned to solo in a kind of bebop language, if you haven't learned the language, right? So it, it is very much like a language. So it's, it's really not good to um, just learn the chords and then think that it's about painting by numbers right so it's it isn't you can't solo well you can but it won't sound good if you solo in a painting by numbers way so you know i know these notes will fit this chord or this scale will fit these chords you know therefore i'm going to play these notes or i'm going to play this scale that's not how it works right because it's exactly like language you have to you have to say things that make sense and you're trying to be understood uh, so it's not quite you know we're not actually talking to each other in the way that you do with language but if you just said random words in a random order with no uh, with no framework to fit them into um, it becomes rapidly becomes pointless right so 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 like soloing Jazz soloing is, is, is very much like that. And uh, the, the, the bebop language is full of cliched ways of, of getting through chord sequences. So, you know, we've been talking so far about memorizing chords, but 
there's a whole other world out there about how do you once you have memorized them and you can accompany someone by comping those chords behind them when it comes to your solo you've also got the challenge of how do you solo over those chords now it really helps that you've already memorized those chords because because otherwise 50 percent of your brain would be thinking oh my god what's the next chord right so that at least that's not happening so the real it's all about layers you've got the advantage having memorized the chords in a way that you're actually not really thinking about them at all anymore because it it's so well ingrained but you can spend all your time thinking about creating a good improvisation on top of those chords when it comes to your 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 turn to solo but when but to do that you have to have the language again i i'm not sure how well this you know meshes with what you were previously saying but you spurred this thought in my head about the the lingua franca is is bebop even though the bebop era and I think Barry Harris, Barry Harris, who recently died, may be the the last. He may be the last living person from the bebop era. You know, um, there may be nobody left who was actually alive at that time. That's how long ago it was. But um, it's still it's still the basic way of speaking. And then yeah. you build you build more you build more modern ways. You add more modern ways into it, but the what do you call it? I mean, the, you know, the fundamental foundation is bebop. Yeah. The, the album. Uh... Oh, go ahead. The evolution yeah, of jazz. What's, what's going to, the evolution of jazz. It's interesting because bebop didn't come first. You know, there was Dixieland traditional jazz in the, in the, in the twenties. And then there was a swing in the thirties and forties. And then, and then the bebop, bebop came late forties and fifties. You know, it took until then for that language to evolve from, you know, from the marching bands of New Orleans or whatever, wherever it came from. Right. Um, but it's but but it's still there, right? So even twenty twenty three, if you can't play bebop, then you you you're not. It doesn't sound like you're speaking authentic jazz. You said to me, "What is jazz?" To me. It's not just improvise. It's not just any music with improvisation in it, which is what I said a definition at the top of this conversation. You've got to have authentic language, and and you know jazz isn't jazz is that American music, and and even though it's spread across the globe, and you know there's a whole branch of European jazz like the ECM jazz label, famously with um, American jazz musicians like um, Keith Jarrett who recorded on ECM. Um, even though it's, you know, and you've got your Europeans, um, on there as well, some from the UK, some from Scandinavia or whatever, and they make great jazz together and it's not all, it's different from American jazz, but it's still the language that they're, you know, that they're speaking over those chords is people plus more modern stuff. Does that make sense? It does. Yeah, no, it does. Uh, the... Well, as a quick aside, you know, and kind of expounding on that, the album, um, the miseducation of Lauren Hill, that whole album is is bebop based, uh, you know, which is a mixed pop, rap, hip hop album. Uh, you know, Lauren Hill from the Fugees, um, she did that in a lot of in a lot of ways. Like that song, you know, is doo-wop, That the song that thing is a, kind of a a doo-wop swing, which comes directly from that influence as well of bebop, which. Uh, which is interesting. It's it's kind of 
still around, you know, it's just the little phrasing and the influence of it, kind of like the starting of an idea kind of branches off into, you know, multiple different facets. Um, but, you know, what you said about the, the, you know, the common language or the lingua franca of bebop, you know, it's interesting, like, I feel like art or forms of expression, if it's, you know, speaking in front of a crowd, if it's painting, graphic design, all of those things are, you know, you need to learn the, the fundamentals of it. And then if you learn the fundamentals, you can learn how to apply that in many different ways. And you can also learn to apply it to also different mediums, even um, kind of going back to learning how to learn. But if you, you know, hammer out learning the fundamentals, if it's being able to learn, you know, the painstaking, you know, ability to even pull out the sound of a bass, you know what I mean? Like something that I'm surprised sometimes is some, you know, people just kind of don't notice the sound of the different instruments, right? So, you know, teaching your ear to be able to hear the different instruments, then teaching your ear to be able to pull out the notes of those instruments. That's all learning the language in, in your, you know, lexicon. And being able to do that is the fundamentals to be able to express yourself more deeply and be able to actually pick and part and pull and, and, and speak in that language, you know, to, to kind of keep extending the analogy. You know, I like, I like comparing things broadly to other things because I feel like it, it helps kind of find tr truth across it. And, you know, it, it's interesting to me that the people who you, you see people are like, oh, my God, they're so athletic. Like they can just like pick up any sport and all of a sudden be super athletic. And it's like, well, if you, what you don't see is that that person has some type of basic routine that they hammer out that teach taught them the fundamentals of being able to be athletic <laughs> And then they can apply it to all these different sports, right? Like it's, it's no wonder that, you know, these super athletes can pick up almost any sport and be able to be like, not almost any, but one that would apply to their skill sets and be able to move around them so fluidly, uh, especially you see like, you know, kids in like the high school years being able to, you know, be multi-sport athletes and just dominate. And a lot of that has to do with, well, they have really great fundamentals of being able to express themselves with their body in that way, just in the same way that somebody who's a really good painter can all of a sudden, you know, switch to a mixed media art or, or those type of things. Or, I mean, Picasso, I think of a lot in this analogy because he just spent so much time learning the classic painting structure that all of a sudden, you know, like you look at Picasso's earlier works and, and they, you would not think they were Picasso because they're, you know, the classic still life of flowers or something. Um, but from learning those fundamentals, he was able to break out and use that medium to speak in a different way. Um, you know, and express himself in a different way. And just in the same way that, you know, you can learn bebop and all of a sudden learn how to express it in a different way. If, you know, if it's injecting it into other music, you know, creating new things from it or even just continuing on in it, right? Like learn the, learning the fundamentals and then learning that as a means to express it is is essential to be able to really be proficient in, in anything is really what I'm trying to say. Okay, great. Well, nice to meet you, JR. Yeah, nice to meet you as well. Thank you again. It's been uh, it's been a fun chat. Okay, great. Thanks a lot.